The following message is brought to you by Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We exist to bring glory to God by knowing Christ and making Him known. If you would like to visit our church, we hold multiple services on Sunday mornings starting at 9 a.m. We are located between Motokare Wharf and Edai Town. Pickups are available 7091000. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to read verses 14 down to verse 21 together. Romans chapter 9, verse 14 down to verse 21. Romans 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, on whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet fault? For who hath resisteth his will? Nay, but, O man, art thou that repliest against God? Shalt the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay, or the same of the same lump, to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to be destruction. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Thank God for his word. Romans chapter 9 will be parked there all day. I do hope that you have your Bibles and that you'll follow along. The Lord always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. You can trust him. And when he says in Romans chapter 8 that nothing will separate us from the love of God, he means it. Absolutely nothing. The momentary circumstances of life will make you feel like perhaps he has abandoned you, but he has not, for nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth nor any other creature. 
Nothing can separate us. And that brought us into the question that we saw last week. What about Israel? Uh, Israel was God's chosen people, and yet it seemed like perhaps God had broken His promise to them to care for them. And we saw last week that Paul argued very strongly, God never ever breaks his promise. And so God still has some promises for Israel that he will come back and he will fulfill those. And in the meantime, he has chosen to give promises to the Gentiles. That means that just because he had promised to Israel did not mean that he had secluded the rest of the world. In fact, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross, and He included the rest of us in. By including others, He did not do away with the promises for Israel. Keep in mind that we, church, are not Israel. So the promises that God made to Israel do not automatically transfer over to us, the church. There are many promises that God gave to Israel that do not come to us as the church. One of those that's very popular, very famous, and people grab on to those. One of those popular ones would be 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and I will heal their land. That is a promise given to Israel, not to the church. God told His people, Israel, if you'll humble yourself, I will listen to your prayers and I will heal your land. And if you try to take that promise that was given to Israel and apply that to us in the church, you will say things like, well, if I just pray, God will bless my garden. You're getting back to a cargo cult mentality where you think that you can manipulate God into making you rich. Don't go there. The promise was given to Israel. It was not given to us. And you might say, but that's not fair. Why would God give one promise to those people and a different promise to us? And I want you to hear me well right now. God will keep every one of His promises, but God also has the right to choose to whom He will give His promises. And that is our overarching idea for today. God is righteous in all of His ways. And He has the right to choose to whom He will give His promises. And we'll see that in our passage today. Today's sermon, I've titled it, The Righteous Sovereign. And we'll take it from Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 21. The Righteous Sovereign. And before we jump into the passage, perhaps I can give you some idea of where this comes from. See in verse 14, the statement, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. There is no unrighteousness in God. In fact, He is perfect, sinless. And so when I say the righteous sovereign, I've got in my mind that everything He does is perfect. He is righteous throughout all of His ways. And He Himself took on the robes of flesh and embodied Himself as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in all of His days upon the earth, living as a human being, tempted in all points as man was. He never sinned a single time. Not once. As a baby, he did not demand his own and smack his his mother. Not one time. As a child, 
He did not slip away to his neighbor's house and steal fruit from their tree. Never. As a young man, he never lusted after another. As a grown man, he was never greedy of another. He did not have a single sinful thought in all of his days. He's righteous. He was tempted in all ways, just like you and I, and yet without sin. And he never sinned a single time. That was God in the flesh. He is righteous. And then, while I say he is righteous, I also say he is sovereign. And sovereign means that he is in control of all things. The very idea that he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is in charge of all things, he's in control of all things. And remember from Romans chapter 8 and our time in Romans chapter 8, all things includes even those bad things that come into our lives. Famine and the sword and despair and all of those bad things, groaning and sickness, all of those, He brings those as the sovereign knowing what is good for us. He does not on the back end of a bad thing somehow try to weave together all those bad things for you. No, He who is in control of start to finish brings those bad things into your life for He knows they will conform you into the image of His Son. And don't think that His sovereignty somehow only started at the moment that you were saved. Don't think, well, when I was lost... I did my own thing. And now somehow, when I got saved, when I put my trust in Christ, now He becomes the Sovereign. No, He's been the Sovereign from the beginning. The Apostle Paul speaks to this. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says this, When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son to me that I might preach Him. Do you see the words that are there? God... Paul says, God chose me while I was still in my mother's womb. And if you'll think deeply with me for just a moment, he was chosen before he was born to preach the gospel, and yet he spent the majority of his early years hating Jesus. Chosen, and yet hating Jesus. You see, God did not all of a sudden become sovereign in his life the moment that he trusted Christ. No, God has been sovereign all along. You might remember Ephesians 1 and verse 3 last week. I mentioned it for helping you reframe the definition for blessing. Please don't use the word blessing to mean financial gain. Instead, think of the spiritual blessings which He has manifoldly poured out upon our lives. And here's Ephesians 1 and verses 3 and 4. These flow together, so watch as verse 3 flows into verse 4. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as He has chosen in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy without blame before Him in love. What did He predestinate you to do, believer? He predestinated you... Romans 8.29, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Ephesians 1.4, He chose you before the foundation of the world that you would be holy. Don't think for a moment that your salvation means, oh, I get out of hell and into heaven, and in the meantime, I'm going to live like the devil. No, He chose you to conform you to the image of His Son so that you would live holy. Your life should be different. You should be sanctified as a result of Him choosing you. Yes, even before the foundation of the world. He is 
sovereign. And perhaps some of you even this morning would admit, I have not yet put my trust in Christ. And maybe, like Paul, you have spent your life apart from Christ. Can I tell you, He is still sovereign. He's still seeking. He's still sending His Holy Spirit to draw your heart. And He's drawing you into a saving relationship with you. And He's saying to you things like, would you have a look at what I've done with my Son by putting Him on the cross? Oh, He's a sovereign. And He's righteous. And everything that He does is right. He does not force Himself upon you. But He chose you before you even knew anything about Him. The world does not understand this. I'll tell you what I mean by this. The world does not understand the concept of a righteous sovereign. They say that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so the world has no space within their thinking in order to handle how do you have a sovereign of the universe who is righteous. The world does not understand this. But then again, we are talking about the sovereign king of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords, the God Almighty who is all-wise and all-knowing and all-loving and all-just and all-powerful and all-kind and all-long-suffering and all-compassion all compassionate, and in Him is no darkness. So while the world would struggle to have a sovereign who is righteous, because they're afraid that that sovereign would use His abilities to manipulate man to do what would serve Him, instead we have an all-wise and all-loving God who does not manipulate, and yet He does all things for our good and for His glory. Oh, see Him as the righteous sovereign. And so at moments in the sermon today, I think that perhaps you might find yourself, if you're following along logically, you might find yourself objecting. That's natural. I would plead with you this morning, follow along according to the Scriptures and what do the Scriptures have to say. For if you want to know about the nature of God, find it in the Scriptures. And so we see Him as a righteous sovereign. I'll give an overarching theme for the day. I'll say it in two different ways. Number one is this. There is no unrighteousness in God. We saw that in verse 14. There is no unrighteousness in God. If I can say it a different way, I'll say it a different way. There's another way to say this. What God chooses to do is always right. I hope you can see that, and I hope you can understand that. What he chooses to do is always right. And when you bring that home and apply it in your life, suddenly there's going to be moments when you say, no, wait, I think I know what's best for me. And he says, no, I know what's best for you. You can trust him, for there is no unrighteousness in God. Let's come into verse 15. I'll give two major points If you want to know how to outline the passage, I'll give two major points. Underneath the first one, we'll have two minor points, and then we'll see the second point before we're finished. The first point is coming from verses 15 to 18. We'll see two biblical examples of the sovereignty of God over all men. Two biblical examples of the sovereignty of God over all men. Let's read verses 15 and 16 to see the first example. 
Verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So this first example, I might even say it's a positive example because the other one's going to be a negative example. The first example is Moses, and the statement is made, you can see it there in verse 15, for he saith to Moses, and here's the statement, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Remember, God gets to choose to whom he gives his promises. He doesn't give those to everyone. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This example comes from Exodus chapter 33, and this is a statement that God made to Moses. I'll just give you a quick synopsis of what had happened. Moses had gone up onto Mount Sinai. God had given him the law. We saw last week God having had written that law with his own finger. And Moses carries that law down, and when he gets down to the people, the people are right in the midst of a very sinful, immoral worshiping of a golden calf. Amazing side point, it's amazing how quickly we can stray from the way of God. Yea, even while God with his finger is writing the law on the mountain that they can see, they have decided to turn their backs on God. Oh, how easy it is for us to walk away from the ways of God. And here Moses comes down the mountain, sees what's going on. In a moment of indignation, he takes those tablets, having just been written by God, and he smashes them on the ground. He then becomes very angry with the people. He says to them, who is it that has led you astray? They point at Aaron. Aaron points at the people, just like Adam pointed at Eve in the garden. Moses grinds up that golden calf, tosses it in the water, and then he makes a statement that brings up the Levitical priesthood. He makes a statement, if you're on God's side, step across. And the Levitical men step across. And Moses says, God is sending you in amongst the people, and those who are against God, just slay them. And those Levitical men grabbed their swords and began to slay people throughout the crowd. 3,000 men died in that immediate moment. Moses calls them back off. And then God sends a second plague in among the people. You see, God is always righteous, and he does not allow sin to stand in his presence. God begins to speak with Moses in the tabernacle. The phrase is used there in Exodus 33, Moses spoke with God as a man speaks with his friend. And God calls Moses back up to the mountain. And there in the mountain, we saw a glimpse of this last week where Moses had asked God, show me your glory. All of this has come rapid fire into chapter 33. And now God covers Moses there in the cleft of the rock with his hand and passes by. You remember that from last week. And here's what God said to Moses. This was Exodus chapter 33. uh, Sorry, chapter 33, verse 19. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, 
and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see, God has the right to show mercy upon whomever He pleases. He is sovereign. He gets to choose. It's up to Him. The Apostle Paul makes this statement here. You might think that God is unrighteous in setting Israel aside for the time being, but God is God Almighty and He has the right to choose whom He will show mercy. And when He chooses, it's up to Him and He will do it. Follow through in verse 16 here. So then it is not of Him that willeth or of Him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. It's not him that willeth. It's not because you said, well, I want it so bad. And it's not because he runs. In other words, I'm going to work for this one. No, it's up to God to show mercy. And for Israel, it wasn't because Israel wanted it. And it wasn't because Israel worked so hard for it. But it was simply because God wanted to show mercy upon the people of Israel that he showed mercy. And then for you and I, if we can allow that to sink in for our salvation, to keep in mind the words of Ephesians chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, hath he quickened. You and I. It wasn't because we were working so hard to become believers. And it wasn't because we were so special. Hey, even it wasn't God came along in a rowboat and saw you struggling in the water and helped you out. That's not how it worked. Oh no. You were a skeleton in the mud helpless and he came along and he breathed the breath of life into those old dry bones and he took your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh and he made you a new creature old things are passed away behold all things are become new you are crucified with Christ on the cross and made alive now you are a new creature it's no longer I that lives but Christ that lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so friend it was him that did it it wasn't you you might think for just a moment well I heard the gospel and so I accepted Jesus no he was the one that was at work all the time Be careful not to lift yourself up. It's not you that wills, and it's not you that runs. It's Him that shows mercy. Now we come to the negative example found in verse 17, and this is Pharaoh. I almost see this in Paul's mind as he goes, you know what, we just talked about Moses. Let's talk about Pharaoh. Here we go, verse 17. Pharaoh, the negative example. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. And that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And this quote comes from Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. God told Moses to go meet with Pharaoh. Six plagues had already occurred at this moment. You might remember them. The Nile turned to blood. We don't have a context for that here. The Nile is a massive river. Think of the Fly River turns to blood. That will make global news. The Nile turned to blood. The frogs, the flies, the lice, the pestilence upon the cattle. Six plagues have now occurred. And God tells Moses, I want you to go and stand before Pharaoh and make this statement. You can see it in verse 17. It's the very same thing as Exodus 9 and verse 16. Here's the statement. Hey, Pharaoh, 
For this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. That's a smack in the face to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I raised you up so that I could make myself look good. That's what God just said. And he goes, hey Moses, how about you walk in there? There's four plagues still to come. We've knocked out six of them so far. And by the way, all six of these would be what we call today plagues of biblical proportion. These are massive. These are the sort of thing, any one of them, most likely, all of the human beings throughout all time have never seen a single one like this. He's gone through six of them already, and he's got four to come. Egypt's economy is wrecked. And God goes, I'm doing this so that people will know how mighty I am. I'm God Almighty. You don't push back. I raised you up, Pharaoh. I had mercy on the people of Israel because I wanted to show mercy on them. And I'm going to push you down, Pharaoh, because I want people to see how mighty I am. God could have, in a moment, God could have changed Pharaoh's heart. He could have done it. He turns the hearts of kings wherever He will. And He could have turned the heart of Pharaoh. He could have tweaked Pharaoh's brain like He did to Nebuchadnezzar. He could have done anything He wanted to. But you know what He wanted to do? He wanted to show His might and power to the earth. So He goes, Pharaoh, I set you up so that I can show my own power. You see, there's two things, two reasons there in verse 17. Two purposes. Even for this same purpose. We make this statement a lot. God always fulfills His purposes. And He says here, for this purpose I raised you up, Pharaoh. And there's two of them given there. First one, I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. I had a reason to raise you up, Pharaoh, and my reason was so that I could show off my might to the earth. I want other people to know that you don't stand up against God. Now listen, friend, the world would have you to believe that God is only love. And some would have you to believe that maybe the God in the Old Testament was a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. No, He is the very same God. It takes the God of wrath to understand how important is the God of love. He is full of compassion, long-suffering, not willing that any of us should perish. But friend, the word perish comes from Him. It is His display of wrath that lets us to see how very important it is to escape His wrath. His wrath was displayed in Pharaoh. His wrath was displayed, you might remember, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and on when they stood against Moses and said, who gave you the authority? And God said, let me show you. Let me show you a little bit of power. As He opens the earth, swallows them and their families and closes it back up. That's a display of the wrath of God. The writing of the hand of God on the wall in Daniel's day in such a way that the king of the land sits there with his knees shaking and says, somebody please come interpret what's just been written on the wall. And a foretelling in the book of Revelation that flows out from the wrath of God in the books that have been sealed. The book with seven seals of Revelation chapter 5 as that book of wrath is unleashed. And I think of one of them, the sixth trumpet, 
whereby in that unleashing of wrath, out of the bottomless pit will come great flying locusts that are the size of horses, faces of men, hair like women, teeth like lions, sting in their tails like scorpions, and they will torment mankind for five months in such a way that men will wish that they could die. You know what that is? It's a terrifying display of the wrath of God. Without the wrath of God, you do not appreciate His mercy. And God says, Pharaoh, I raised you up so that men will see how terrifying I can be. It's a glimpse of the raw power of the wrath of God. And that wrath is directly tied to the sin of man. Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this purpose. What's the purpose? You see it in verse 17? That I might show my power in thee. And, there's a second purpose, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. There's two reasons here. One is, I need to display my power upon this earth, and I'm going to use you, Pharaoh. You're going to be big head about this, so I'll go ahead and use you. And second reason is so that my name will be spread all throughout the earth. That's the second reason, to declare God's name throughout the earth. And and we still, to this day, talk about the might of God as a result of Pharaoh's rebellion against God. To this day, his name has been made great because of what God displayed in the life of Pharaoh. And you might think back just to those days when the spies came into Jericho and met with Rahab. Do you remember that? It's been 40 years from Pharaoh's death until the spies come into Jericho and meet Rahab. And maybe you remember what Rahab said. Everybody in this city is terrified because we know what God did with you in Egypt. You know what God did? He spread His name throughout the earth because of Pharaoh. You see, God can have mercy upon whom He wants to have mercy And see in verse 18, the conclusion of that matter. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Whoever God wants to show mercy upon, he can, because he's God. He has the right to give promises to whomever he wants to. And he also has the right to harden those whom he wants to harden. Might make a word statement about the hardening of Pharaoh. I spent some time in studying the hardening of Pharaoh and between Exodus 7 and Exodus 14, the phrase hardened his heart shows up 19 times. Of those, it's very interesting how they go. The first four times that it mentions Pharaoh's heart being hardened was God speaking to Moses prophetically saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's before Moses even makes it to Egypt. Now think about this for just a moment. If you're Moses, you're out in the desert and you've been looking after your father-in-law's sheep for the last 40 years, you're now 80 years old and you're happy to keep doing this through your retirement days. But God shows up in a burning bush and gets your attention, so you come over and have a look at the burning bush and then God goes, hey, take your shoes off, I've got something I need to talk to you about. You're a wanted man in Egypt, so I need you to go back to Egypt. And the guy that's Pharaoh now, he knows who you are. 
he's going to have a hard heart. In fact, I'm going to harden his heart, but I still want you to go and tell him to let those people go. If I'm Moses in that moment, yippee. I'm going to go back where they want to arrest me. And I'm going to tell him to let the people go and he's going to say no. And God, you're going to further harden his heart? How exciting. No wonder I am not a man of good speech. I need somebody else to speak on my behalf. Please, I'll hide behind Aaron. He can go first. And yet God says four times before he ever makes it to Egypt, God says, I'm going to harden his heart. And then Moses makes it to Egypt and eight times, the scripture says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now watch that progression. God prophesied that it would happen. And eight times in a row, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And on the back end of that, seven more times it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That gives me a lesson here. For the all-wise, all-knowing, all-compassionate God knows all things. You might remember in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, it said that he predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his son. But it says that he did that according to his foreknowledge. He knew what was going to happen. So I'm going to take you and use you. And you might be used as a vessel of mercy and you might be used as a vessel of wrath. Those are next week's verses. God chooses, but he also gives you chances. There are many verses throughout Scripture that show this. Whosoever will, a drink of the river of life freely. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's not cutting you out from the beginning but oh, if you push back against him, he will use you as a vessel of wrath. And he will use you to show his might on this earth. And people will know his name is great. Oh, don't push back against the grace and mercy of God. We've seen now the two examples in verses 15 to 18. And we'll come into the second point for the Passage. I see this in verses 19 to verse 21, and I call this a blasphemous objection. A blasphemous objection. Let's read verse 19 to see the objection. It might be a, phrased in a question, but I see this as someone who's going to object to what was just said. Remember, it was just said, God will show mercy on whom he wants to show mercy, and he will harden whom he will harden. So here comes an objection. Thou wilt say unto me, says the Apostle Paul, he says, as you read this, perhaps you might object and you might say like this, here comes, this is what you might say, thou wilt say unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? So here's the objection. If God will show mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will harden whom he ha will harden, then it's not my fault. If he has hardened me, then it's not my fault. Who will find fault? That's the question. Where does he find fault? Who has resisted his 
will, and this is a natural way, let's be honest about the question, this is a natural man who does not love the things of God looking for excuses to find his way out from the wrath of God. And the Apostle Paul says, I already know that you're going to say this. And the Apostle Paul does not even address the question. He doesn't say, well, you're thinking about it in the wrong way. Let me help you rephrase the question. He doesn't do that. Instead, in verse 20, he gives a completely different way to think. Nay, verse 20, nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Here's the the objection. Blasphemous objection. How can God ever judge me if he decided that I was going to be hard? The response to that is, who are you to question the ways of God? That's the response. Nay, but O man, who art thou that speakest against God? Just think with me for just a moment. Stop right there. Who are you to question God? There's a great example of this in the life of Job. You remember Job. The Old Testament, Job, one of the only men in all of the Bible to say that he was righteous. He was doing right and he hated evil. And yet God allowed those bad things to come into his life. You remember his children died and he lost all of his cattle. Everything his health included, gone. And there his friends who were supposed to come and be his comforters end up coming and accusing him of living a life of sin and he's like no wait it's not me and before it's over with Job begins to question God and God responds to him gives him four chapters of questions I can't imagine God hitting you rapid fire with questions enough that it would fill four chapters He asked questions like, hey Job, where were you when I created the world? So if you're going to start thinking in terms of I can question the ways of God, think of the questions that God could ask you. Where were you when I created the world? Have you been everywhere on the earth in order to be an expert all about it? How about this one? Can you tell the clouds when it's time to release their rain? Or even better, how many clouds are there in the world? These are the questions that God asked Job. You don't know simple things like what day the goat's going to have his babies. And were you the one that gave the beautiful wings to the peacock? He's all over the place asking questions that Job could never answer. Are you the one that gave the horse his strength? And that was just two chapters. And at the end of two chapters of questions, God pauses and he makes a statement. This is Job 40, verse 2. He asks this question. Shall he that contends with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. That's the very same question that Paul is giving us today in verse number 19. Do you think for even one moment that you can question the way that God thinks? And God demanded of Job, Job, I demand of you, answer me, answer me. And I can just see there in that picture, as Job is probably all the way down to the fetal position, as God has hammered him with question after question, and God says, hey, answer me. Are you going to question me? And Job's response is the right response. Job responds with one sentence, I am but a vile man. 
I have no right to answer you, God. And God continues again for another two, cha two chapters and unloads questions upon him again. God says, yes, you are vile. Do you have an arm like God? Friend, be careful when we question God and all of his wisdom. When he decides that he will have mercy, we rejoice in his mercy. And when he decides that he will harden for his purposes to display his might upon the earth and for his ways in order to spread the fame of his name to all the world, oh, be careful that I don't bring my accumulated 43 years of knowledge to come against him who is the Ancient of Days. Who am I? I'm nothing. And you and your 20 years and you've made it all the way through university or perhaps you got a master's degree or maybe you got two PhDs. You're going to wave those in front of God Almighty. Oh, be careful with your finite wisdom. For His ways are far above our ways. His thoughts far above our thoughts. And how He chooses to work Oh, let us, like Job, humble ourselves before Him. I am but a vile man. My mind will never be able to wrap around all of your ways, but your ways are always righteous. Therefore, I will humble myself. And friend, good men will argue predestination of God against the free will of man until the Lord comes back and we will never be able to resolve that. They are two truths that you will never be able to resolve. Find yourself resting, perhaps looking at a glimpse of Pharaoh and realizing God gave him eight chances before he hardened seven times. For he does say, whosoever will. And when His Holy Spirit draws you, be careful of ever thinking, I'm the one who came and chose Jesus. Oh no, He was drawing you in, chosen before the foundation of the world. And when you come in, look back upon the glorious truth that it was Him in the first place. It was never me. Then He makes another statement. See in verse 20, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Did you forget that you're the creation and he's the creator? Be careful. The creation never gets to look at the creator and say, How come you did this? He's righteous in all of his ways. And then in verse 21, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump? He takes the same lump of clay and out of that same lump to his own will to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. For he is the one who molds and shapes and he is the one who is righteous in all of his ways and he knows all things. So be careful and be slow to look upon the other and say, why did he make that one to dishonor? Oh, he has his own purposes. Bask in the glory that is, he has chosen me to be a vessel of mercy. I never deserved that one. And I will be slow to think, why would there be some who are not saved? Next week we will pick up in verse 22 and most likely finish the chapter. 
And if I can bring this home for us in conclusion. For Israel, God chose Israel and God made promises to Israel. He has not forgotten Israel. That's not us. We did not replace them. He did not come along and say, well, oops, some things changed, so I need to rearrange the way that I do things. Nope. He knew how he was going to do it from the foundation of the world. He made promises to Israel. He will still fulfill those promises. And now, he has given a chance to you and I, Gentiles, the remainder of the world. And he has called out us. We will see this in next week's passage. He has now chosen us, not just Jew and Gentile. He has now chosen us as the church. This is a glorious thought. But he has not forgotten his promises to Israel, so he will come back to them. And then for us today, believers, he who is the ancient of days, knows the ends from the beginning, chose you before the foundation of the world. And I think in particular of some who are among us, even this morning, friend, I will say it like this with a bit of transparency that is very rare from the pulpit. Many of us have been praying for you by name. Because we know that you've come and you've heard the gospel over and over and over And by name, we've prayed for you because we know that the gospel does a life-transforming work. And we know that God gives opportunity. But I also know that he who rejects the gospel, his heart will eventually be hardened to the gospel. I don't choose that. And so I beg of you this morning... If God has done a work in your heart in calling you to repentance, please don't push back away from Him. Eight times Pharaoh was given a chance. God knew what He was going to do. And it ends with Pharaoh being crushed in the Red Sea. Another one in a sea of dead soldiers floating on the water the next day. Please don't push back against the mercy of God. Father, I pray this morning that you would do your Holy Spirit work of convicting hearts of the need of salvation. Oh, Father, day after day, prayers ascend into the heavens on behalf of friends who have not put their trust in the Lord Jesus. And God, I pray that the day would not come when they just walk away, wash their hands. Oh, I've tried church. It didn't work. But Father, I pray that instead, even in a day like today, behold, today is the day of salvation. And so I pray that even today, Lord, that you would do your work and draw their hearts. Oh, I don't want anyone to be a vessel fit for dishonor. 
your compassionate, long-suffering towards us, Lord. Thank you for the love of God. I pray we would glimpse the wrath of God and see it as a serious thing. I'm going to give an invitation this morning. I might ask you to remain seated where you're at, heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I need to put my trust in the Lord Jesus. I've heard this morning of the grace of God, but I've also heard of the wrath. And I need, I know that I need to put my trust in Jesus. I'd love to talk to somebody about that. If you're like that this morning, would you just raise your hand? I'll have somebody come. Take the two of you, go off to the side and talk about it. Is there anybody like that this morning? Say, Pastor, I'd love to put my trust in Christ. Is there one like that this morning? Oh, Father, do your work in our hearts. I thank you for your grace upon us. We do not deserve your promises. You've chosen to give them to us, and we're so thankful for them. I pray that we would not neglect the goodness of God. I pray that we would not see the goodness of God as your stamp of approval upon our sinful lives, but instead that we would see the goodness of God as you've intended it to be, yes, drawing us to repentance. So, Father, thank you for your goodness. May your name be glorified in our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen. If following this. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Matt Allen of Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We would love to have you join us for service if you are in the area. If you need help with transportation, please give us a call on 709 1000. Again, it's 709 1000.